My name is Bill Acker. My wife and I worship here at Living Stone, although you probably haven't seen much of us uh, through the summer. Since June, I've been preaching at other churches in Wisconsin. A number of churches are without pastors. And um, I get called and say, hey, Bill, are you able to preach for us on this Sunday? And I said, yes. And I said, and by the way, since you're ordained, can you administer the Lord's Supper for us? We don't have a pastor. So I said, yes. So I uh, have a little break coming up from all of that, but I am here today and look forward to sharing God's word with you. The passage this morning is Hebrews chapter 2, the first four verses. Now, before I read the passage, I want to say a few things about what the passage entails. Uh, in just a minute, I'll say more about how it relates to the first chapter and everything. But chapter 2, these verses, 1 through 4, are a warning. And through the book of Hebrews, there are a number of warnings, seven or eight warnings that will be addressed in future sermons. Now, you might say, what well, warning? Okay, is this like something Josh came up with or me or something? No. Uh, I have before me a commentary by John Owen. Owen lived in the 1600s. In the, from, in the 1640s, he was chaplain to uh, Oliver Cromwell, if you know anything about English history. And what else happened in the 1640s in England and London? Anybody know? What is that? The Westminster Assembly met and the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms and uh, Directory of Worship and all of that were produced during that time. Now, come here, Chris. So what is the full title of the book? Hebrews, the Epistle of the Warning. All right. So someone like Owen can say, this is an epistle of warning. We certainly could say the same thing. Owen was probably the prince of all of the Puritan writers. Just a brilliant, brilliant scholar. Now, having said that, <clears throat> I lose track of time, but it was back in the 1990s. My wife and I moved to Appleton in 1991, March of 1991. We lived on North Douglas Street for about nine and a half years before we moved down to uh, what was what is now Fox Crossing. It used to be called the town of Menasha. And not far from my street was a railroad track that crossed Wisconsin Avenue, right where Badger Avenue comes into Wisconsin. And on the upper side of the street from where Badger is, there's a motor mart, gas station, and car wash. So I was coming back from some meeting at night. The lights were flashing by the train track. I stopped, I looked down the track, and way off I could see the headlights of the train. Had two lights. One was a fixed light. The other below it was one that would go up and down so it would really catch your attention. So I'm sitting there with my foot on the brake by the track, and I'm thinking to myself, that train is a long way off. I know the lights are flashing. I'm supposed to stop. It's a long way off. I think I can make it across. About the time my mind was saying across, that train came roaring by probably 60 miles an hour. 
And I realized if I had not heeded that warning light, I would have been dead. I could not have made it across in time. There's something about trains because of their size. You can see one a ways away. It doesn't look like it's moving very fast because it's so big, but it is. And it takes a train about a mile to stop, so you don't want to um, get in front of it and get crushed. But there's something about human nature that wants to ignore a warning. If the check engine light comes on your car, what do you do? Do you say, well, you know, I've changed oil maybe a year or two ago. It's probably okay. There's nothing matter. I'll just keep going. Some people do that. And they're surprised later when maybe the engine freezes up and they don't know why. Or maybe you're watching television and the smoke alarm goes off. You're not cooking anything in the kitchen, but it goes off. You open a window, get some fresh air, it stops. A few minutes later, it starts again. So you can do one of two things. You can go through your house or your apartment, make sure there's no smoke, there is no fire anywhere. Or you can take the batteries out of the smoke alarm. Some people do that. They ignore the warning. The other night, my wife and I were out walking. It was after dark. And we were at one place in our neighborhood, which was, well, there's a little distance between the street lights, and a car was kind of turned a corner, was coming at us at a pretty good rate of speed. And I realized that she was wearing all dark clothes. I had on jeans and a dark green jacket. And I said uh, to myself, you know, we really should wear something light when we're walking at night. So we just moved up onto the grass next to where we were so the car didn't hit us. I knew that we should wear light if we were out at night, but I ignored that warning. We know that we should ride our bikes with in the daytime with bright colored clothing at night with uh, reflective material or certainly with lights on our bikes. But not everybody does that. They ignore the warnings for that. So it almost seems like Ignoring a warning is part of our fallen nature as people. Is that true? As I was thinking about that, I remembered, wait a minute, wasn't there a warning that came before the fall? When God created Adam, put him in the garden, he said, Adam, you got all these trees, all this fruit, everything is yours to eat, except for this one tree, tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. That's a warning. Maybe the mother of all warnings. So what happened? Don't know how long uh, things went along, but eventually, servant came to Eve, Satan in the form of a servant, and said, did God really say? And a little dialogue transpired, and, and Satan said, you know, God, you're not going to die. He didn't want you to be like him. So he goes away. She's looking at it. looks pretty nice. She takes it. She eats it. It tastes pretty good. Gives Adam. He eats. And all of a sudden, something happens. And their eyes are opened. And their very nature was changed. We call that the fall. And Adam and Eve were placed out of the garden. Run out of the garden. 
And the angel with the flaming sword was there to guard, to keep them from coming back in. Now we live a long time after that, but we still see the effects of the fall around us. We have to contend with all the things which are evil in this world. And we also have that bent of evil toward evil that people have. Fortunately, Christians, by virtue of their salvation and having a new nature, are able to resist temptation, but there are still remnants, I guess, of that old nature there, which prompt us to avoid spiritual warnings. Let me read for you these four verses. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared to us first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So what is the relationship of this passage to chapter one? Well, the passage begins with therefore, and you know the old saying, why is it therefore, therefore, right? Chapter 1 shows us the superiority of Christ over the angels, shows us that he is the Savior. He is God himself who came in the flesh. And once we get into chapter 2, I think, I think the writer of Hebrews is trying to tell us some things. Although he's just mentioned that Christ is far superior to all of the angels, Angels still had a pretty important place to play in the whole plan of salvation. They're ministering spirits, we see in verse 14 of chapter 1. So three things I want to tell you this morning. One, listen carefully to what God tells us. Two, listen to a greater message from Jesus and listen to a message confirmed true by God himself. Listen carefully. Listen to a greater message. Listen to a message that's confirmed true by God. What part did angels play in the big plan of salvation? Well, one of them was there to guard the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. We know that. But they also were involved in the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. Now, we don't usually think about that because we say Moses was there, God was talking to him and all of that. But in Deuteronomy 33, Moses mentions the myriad of angels that were also there. In Galatians, Paul's, Galatians 3, Paul mentions the angels were involved in the giving of the law. We don't know all the parts that they had to play, but they were there. They were there when God gave the Ten Commandments. What do angels do? Well, they announce the law in that case. They also speak for God to God's people. 
Just turn back to the book of Luke, chapter 1. We know that in this chapter, Luke 1, the angel Gabriel comes to Zechariah when he's ministering in the temple and says, hey, you're going to have a kid. His name is going to be John. John does, or Zechariah doesn't believe him. He can't speak until the child is named and all of that. A little bit later in this passage in chapter 2, Angel Gabriel, same angel, comes to Mary and tells her she's going to uh, have a son also. But if you look back at verse 19, the angel answered, Zechariah said, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. So one day, one day Gabriel, was, Gabriel was just sitting drinking coffee at the kitchen table and said, hey, I'm going to go tell Zachariah something. No. In the presence of God, God says, Gabriel, go, and this is the message that you are to give. And go to Mary also. Could we say, honestly, that God told Zachariah he was going to have a son? Yes. Because Gabriel simply delivered the message that God had for them. So that's one of the things that, that they do. They deliver messages to God's people. They're also guardians of children. Matthew 18 talks about the angels in heaven who are guardians of children. We don't know how extensive that is. We wish we knew more, but that's just what we're told. Book of Daniel, we learned that angels have a place to play in regard to nations and things like that. Again, we don't know everything there is to know about that but it appears as though some angels have responsibility for certain realms. We know that they gather the elect at Christ's return, according to Matthew 24. When that last trumpet blows, the angels go out, and those who belong to Christ are gathered up to be with Christ. On the other hand, angels don't preach or teach the elect or govern God's people. They're messengers. They're guardians. So what was that message that came from these angels? More than likely, the writer of Hebrews was thinking more of the Ten Commandments. At least that's what I think. Those angels were involved in that. There was a message there which would teach people how they're supposed to live and understanding that they can't keep the law and they need a Savior. Okay. So the, the people, the Hebrews that are addressed here, they knew that. They knew that. And so the warning is, don't ignore this message because you will drift away from the faith. Pay attention. Listen carefully to what God has said or you have a tendency to drift away from the faith. Probably all of us have known people who profess to be believers, even seem to be very strong believers, but as time went on, their participation in church services got fewer and fewer, and then before you knew it, you never saw them anymore. And you talk to them and say, oh, I'm, I'm kind of done with the church. Moving on to other things. That word drifting away it's kind of an interesting word because it talks about a, a boat 
or a ship that's lost its mooring. Now, probably none of us have a ship. We probably, some of you do have boats. So if you've ever been in a river and you pull the canoe or maybe the kayak up onto shore, but you didn't get up far enough and the current of the river just kind of pushing at the back end. And before you know it, the thing's out in the water, current's carrying it downstream. Ever had that happen? Okay. James has had that happen. Yeah, that happens. Or maybe you're at the ocean. You have some kind of a rubber raft you've been playing in or your kids have been playing in. You pull it up onto the beach a little ways, but not far enough. And a big wave comes in and it floats it and then it drifts back out to sea. But if you don't get it pretty quickly, it's gone forever. That what it means to be to drift away, to not have a solid anchor or be tied to something which is solid so you don't just drift away. And one of the ways we avoid that drifting is by paying attention to those words of warning and the message that we have in the scripture. The second point I want to make is to listen to a greater message which comes from Jesus. So although in the first chapter, angels are said, you know, they're not equal to Jesus, don't worship them. Nevertheless, we see here, they do have a place to play in terms of delivering messages. But Jesus also delivered some messages, which are, I think, spoken of as a greater message that we have. Verse 2 says, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So who told us about the great salvation that was available to us? That was Jesus. What did he say? And it's kind of interesting that salvation is not explained in this passage. And it seems that the, the people of the Hebrews understood what salvation was. And they're warned to be faithful to the message of salvation. But here, we're told there's a, a, this great salvation. So what did Jesus say about salvation? Well, he said several things. One, he said that if you listen to me, you'll learn that I am the way, the truth, the life. I'm the bread of life. I'm the water of life. I'm the resurrection and the life. He said all kinds of things related to who he was in regard to salvation. He said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. He told the disciples, he was going to die on the cross in Jerusalem, and they did their very best to keep him from going to Jerusalem and having that happen. So Jesus understood the reason he came was to offer himself as a sacrifice for the sins of his people. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up again. Talking about his being put to death and his resurrection. He says at the end of Luke, all the scriptures speak of me. So as you read through the gospels, we understand pretty clearly what's involved in salvation. We understand that we're sinful people. We understand that Christ died in our place, took our punishment upon himself, and that we become his people and we live to please him. 
We also find in this passage in Hebrews 2, that the Holy Spirit is also involved as he gives gifts to believers. While we're thinking of the gifts of the Spirit. Maybe thinking of, you know, of the fruit of the Spirit. So what is the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. How do those factor into the life of the church? These are things which, which we have. It's not fruits of the Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit that we have in order to live as Christians as we should. Joy and peace, I think, speak to a certain extent to the rest we have in Christ, where we're not trying to work our way to salvation, but we realize we have it, and we can rest in that and enjoy our salvation. So we are to listen carefully to what, he, what God tells us. We listen to a greater message from Jesus and we listen to a message confirmed true by God. So in the early church, there was a series of signs and wonders and miracles that took place as the apostles went about starting churches in various places. Now, I don't know that every single place there were signs and wonders and miracles, but that was one of the things that accompanied the first preaching of the gospel in certain areas. So there was, actually, if you look at Acts in terms of the ministry of Peter, the ministry of Paul, they, they parallel each other quite a bit. But we know that Peter healed a crippled man. We know that he rebuked Ananias and Sapphira for lying to the Holy Spirit. Ananias was struck dead first. His wife comes along later. She struck dead because they said they had done something which they had not. Jesus said he was going to build his church. And the gates of hell would not prevail against it. For some time, I think in my, my mind, I saw the church as being hidden in a walled city. And all the bad people and the bad things were out there trying to get into us. And one day... As I was reading through scripture, I was reading through it in Mike, actually, we're talking about the breaker who's going to come. Who's going to break down the walls. So people inside this fortress can be liberated. And all of a sudden I said, well, hey, wait a minute. The church is the one that's free. We're like a spiritual army. Satan is the one who is, is holed up someplace with his people. They try to build all these defenses but the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. So we have the privilege as God's people to realize that we are going to be victorious. Maybe not we as an individual, but we as the church. And God has called us and put us in hard places, yes, because that's where the gospel is needed. And as we pray, as we preach, as we share, those defenses start to break down. And the gates of hell 
began to crumble. And those gifts of the Spirit, whether you want to think of um, fruit of the Spirit or the gifts of other spirits, you know, um, exhortation, um, service, all those kind of things, all of those things are used in God's providence to see the church grow and expand. Have any of you ever heard of the LuLaRoe Company? LuLaRoe, you have, okay. They're a company that was started by a lady uh, some years ago, 10 years ago, I think or so. And uh, the idea was that uh, she started out making clothes, people would buy them, and then she kind of franchised what she was doing. And people could buy into the franchise for five to $10,000. And then clothes would be sent to the, those individuals. They would have parties and sell those clothes to other people, or they could get other people to sell the clothes. And uh, things started out pretty well, but then there were complaints because some of the people getting the clothes, when the clothes were wet, they were dirty or damaged, they were moldy, they couldn't be sold, and the company just sort of brushed all that off. In 2017, there was a lawsuit in California that accused the company of being an illegal pyramid scheme because reps could make more money signing other people up to sell the product than they could make by selling the product themselves. And then in 2019, the state of Washington brought a lawsuit against the company, uh, and there was a settlement of $4.75 million earlier this year. So dozens of other former consultants and employees have also sued for millions in damages. Now, this is what I thought was, and by the way, this is the October 23rd issue of Rural Magazine. So this is not an old article. This is, what's today, the 24th? Yes, okay. So the Little Rose story reveals a deeper phenomenon. Companies offering employees and investors a religion, a chance to have meaning and belonging and change the world all the while while making money. Well, who wouldn't want that, right? As one former rep says, they made me feel excited and important and connected until everything went south and they were sort of abandoned and ignored and discredited. There's probably no end of things that entice people to join and become a part of something which will give them community and meaning and all those other things. But all those things will fail and the only thing which will stand to the very end and beyond is that community established by Christ through his work. If you want more, there's a series on Amazon Prime about the company, I think a four-part series, which I have not watched yet. But it was, the article refers to the company as Lula Lies. How do we keep from being spiritually hurt? 
by heeding the warnings of Scripture, by knowing what the Bible says, and with the help of the Holy Spirit, living according to the precepts and the principles and the commandments that are set forth before us. Turning a deaf ear to those things which are part of culture, which try to entice us away from the church and working to establish a good community of believers, which I think you guys are doing. But be aware that there is always that tendency to drift away, to not heed warnings. To say, well, maybe, well, maybe this other thing is really not, not too bad, and I just kind of leave the church and maybe see what's up, what's like. Don't do that. Because your whole spiritual life is in danger when you do that. It is those who persevere to the end who were saved. Let's pray. Lord, as we come before you, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for these words of warning here and, and, and throughout the book of Hebrews. We know these are not here to make us feel bad, but to truly warn us and help us understand this, the dangers, the spiritual dangers which are out there that we cannot ignore. Help us to live for you. In Christ's name, amen.